0: of our lesson tonight and you'll find those on page 80 or 866 to 867 and as far as the scriptures go if you have your bibles with you I'll be uh, referring to quite a few different passages found in first John So last week, if you remember, we considered together K is for the Kingdom of God, and we saw how the Kingdom of God is already present with the arrival of King Jesus, but it is not fully arrived yet. It is not fully present here, and we get sort of a sample of its spiritual reality in our life together as Christians and the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, but the physical fullness of the kingdom of God is still to come, something that we're hoping for, that we're longing for. It is already, but not yet. And so tonight, as we press on, we look at L. L is for love and liberty. But it's important that we kind of build a bridge here. So let me build a bridge from the kingdom of God to tonight's lesson, L is for love. If you think about it, each nation in the world or kingdom has certain core values that represent the culture and life of that place, of that nation. For example, in America, we have the motto, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Right? In France, their motto is, liberté, equality, fraternité, which is freedom, equality, and brotherhood. Very similar, very similar. So what would be the motto of the kingdom of God? What three words would Christ himself choose to define his kingdom and its core values? Well, I don't think we can be a hundred percent sure of that, but the holy scriptures do give us some possible answers to that question. For example, in Isaiah 9 verse 7, that great prophecy that we consider usually at Christmas time about the arrival of the uh, the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us, and the kingdom that He would inaugurate and establish here on earth. It says of the greatness of His government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over His kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And so, from that verse, we can perhaps derive that three-word motto for the kingdom of God being peace, justice, and righteousness. And those are very true core values to the kingdom of God. And these are in some ways comprehensive values that mark the kingdom of God both now and forevermore into eternity. But I think there is actually another passage in the New Testament that is a bit more telling That answers the question more succinctly and also more comprehensively. And that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that great passage on love. And in particular, verse 13, where it says this the Apostle Paul, now these three remain faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So we hear again a three word motto, so to speak. It describes a kingdom of God, faith, hope, and love. And Paul concludes stating that in the end, when all is done, love is the greatest. Why? Well, because faith one day will turn into sight. And Paul says in Romans 8 that hope is, is for things that are unseen, that are still off in the distance, right, that we have promises of, but the, the hope will eventually come to an end when our faith becomes sight as well. So those two will come to an end. And what will remain? Love. Love will persevere in its perfected form for all of eternity into the consummated kingdom of God. And so love, in a sense, um, is, is the most succinct, concise, and summary way of defining the kingdom of God. And why is that? Well, it's because God is love. And since he made us in his image and likeness, He—or we can conclude that he made us to love. He made us as loving beings, but not just to love anything, but rather we were made to love God above all else and to then secondly love our neighbor as ourself. And in 1 John 4, chapter 4, verse 8, we read this whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Now John here, by saying whoever does not love does not know God, he's not speaking about any and all kinds of love, but rather uh, he's referring to a specific kind of love because we can acknowledge and recognize, obviously, that people, all kinds of people, love all different kinds of things, whether that be from... uh, a baseball team that they're in love with and they have shrines in their homes to, um, or their spouse that they love supremely above all else, or whatever it may be. People have all different kinds of love, so that's not what John's referring to. Rather, he's referring to this very specific kind of love, the love of God. That is, the love which one comes from God, it's derived from Him, it flows from Him, and secondly, the love which is aligned with all that God himself loves. In other words, he's speaking about the great commandment that's found in Deuteronomy 6 in the Old Testament, the the Shema, which was repeated morning and evening by the ancient Jewish believers. The Shema in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And we know that Jesus says that the whole law and prophets hang on that, that one commandment, and also the, the second, to love our neighbor as ourselves. That is the summary of what God calls us to, to love him above all else and love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, philosopher and theologian James K. Smith, he writes this in his book, uh, Desiring the Kingdom. He says this, We are primordially, primordially and essentially agents of love, to be human, is to love. And it is what we love that defines who we are. Our ultimate love is constitutive of our identity. It constitutes who we are, right? What distinguishes us is not whether we love, but what we love. What he's saying is that everyone loves, but it's not whether one loves, but whether or what one person is loving, And at the heart of our being, he says, is a kind of love pump that can never be turned off. The effect of sin on our love pump is to knock it off kilter, misdirecting it and getting it aimed at all the wrong things. Our love can be aimed at different ends or pointed in different directions. And these differences are what define us as individuals and as communities. And so you can understand and identify and see who a person is based on what they love, what their affections are drawn to, where their energy and time is spent to and, and for. And not only individuals, but in a sense, communities, societies. You can identify what they are loving by what they are doing and spending their time doing together. And this helps us understand what John means by saying, whoever does not love does not know God. That those whose ultimate love is rightly aimed at God and their neighbor are those who have the love of God, that love which comes from God and is aligned with his heart. And until we know, uh, we know this to be true, that until we are born again by the Holy Spirit, our hearts are naturally, like it said, off kilter. They're naturally bent towards loving ourselves first and foremost, and all other things above the Lord and our neighbor. That's what we are by birth because of our sinful nature, uh, most naturally inclined to. And this is why John earlier writes in chapter 2 of his letter, verse 15, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. And so ultimately we were created to love God above all else and to love created things more than the Lord our God To give our time and attention and affection to other things above God is selfish idolatry. And in a great book that I would recommend to you all, With All Your Heart, it's the title, by Craig Choxel. He is a new professor at Westminster Theological Seminary from the OPC. I uh, I believe Julie Decker knows him personally. It's Craig Choxel. And he's a... In his book, With All Your Heart, this is what he says. He says this, If you find out what people love, then you have discovered what receives their finest effort, their best care, and their greatest devotion, that is, their treasure. At some point, our desires grow so strong and intense that they become what we prize and we love. Whether those desires are pure and honorable, or whether they are corrupt and immoral, they have become what we cherish, this reminds us again why the Puritans were brilliant to refer to our desires as our affections. These, because they reveal what we love. What is, that, what is precious to us and determines our priorities. If this treasure has become misdirected or excessive, then it has become a false love. It has become idolatrous. And so even as we're called to love God above all else, we recognize that because we are created as loving beings, we have the natural tendency to love other things instead of God, which is idolatry. Now, this doesn't mean that desires and affections for created things are bad. Sometimes they are, of course, if those things that we are desiring are evil and destructive to ourselves or to others around us. But even good things, can become idols when we make them ultimate things in our heart. When we say in our heart, so to speak, that life wouldn't be living, worth living, if I didn't have X, Y, or Z. If I didn't have this this one thing, life wouldn't be worth living. That's when we take something, even if it's a good thing, and make it an ultimate thing. The only thing worthy of our deepest affection is Him who is love itself. And it only makes sense to make him who is all-sufficient the one who is our ultimate love because he's big enough to handle all of our love as our ultimate affection. In his great sermon, Heaven is a World of Love, the great Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards, he says this, seeing that God is an infinite being, it follows that he is an infinite fountain of love. Seeing that he is an all-sufficient being, it follows that He is full, overflowing, inexhaustible fountain of love. And that He is an unchangeable and eternal being. He is an unchangeable and eternal fountain of love. So there in heaven dwells a God from whom every stream of holy love, yea, every drop that is or ever was, proceeds. And so we find that because God is so unchangeably Loving and infinite as a fountain of love. That despite our misguided and misdirected hearts that love all the wrong things in all the wrong ways and in all the wrong orders of, of which uh, they should be aligned with God's, despite all of that, God has still loved us. Which is what 1 John 4, 9-11 says where he says, this is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. What John is saying is that God did not merely profess His great love and affection for us with lips, so to speak. But He proved His love for us with great demonstration. He didn't only love us by His Word. He sent the Word into this world. He sent His love in human flesh, His own Son. And God the Father's love incarnated by the Son now begets love in His adopted children by the work of the Holy Spirit so that those who are born again of God in Christ, by faith in Him, the Holy Spirit implants within us that love for God. We could say in this way, that the Spirit takes the broken compass of our heart and fixes that arrow to point towards true north, towards love for God and love for neighbor. Which is why we see in the Belgic Confession, Article 29, so find that again on page 866, not the whole article, We'll read just a portion, but we find here that this kind of love is the primary mark of a true Christian. And so on the second half of the column there, the second column where it starts with as, we read, as for those who are of the church, we can recognize them by the distinguishing marks of Christians, namely by faith, and by their fleeing from sin and pursuing righteousness once they have received the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. They love the true God and their neighbors without turning to the right or the left, and they crucify the flesh and its works. Though great weakness remains in them, they fight against it by the Spirit all the days of their lives, appealing constantly to the blood, suffering, death, and obedience of the Lord Jesus, in whom they have forgiveness of their sins through faith in Him. And so here... As we just read, the Belgic states that this mending of our heart to now love the one true God and love our neighbors as ourselves, this mending, this fixing of our heart is not yet complete. And so it requires daily the crucifixion of our flesh and its works. And so as long as we live in this broken world, uh, as long as we live still in our flesh with the corruption of our sinful nature, as the Belgic says, great weakness still remains in us. But we are equipped by the Spirit to fight, to fight for loving what is good, true, and beautiful, according to God, more and more. And the Spirit is working in the hearts of every true Christian to love God more and more dearly and to love our neighbor as ourself better, more and more, day by day. And so now briefly, I want to connect this to liberty because as the title of the lesson tonight is Love and Liberty. How is this related to liberty? Well, in at least two ways. First of all, since God has so fully loved us, justifying us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are now free from the fear and compulsion to obey God's law. We can now freely and joyfully take up Christ's yoke upon us and obey God because He has loved us already. We love God not because we are trying to win His love, but because He first loved us, which is exactly what 1 John says in 1 John four nineteen: We love because He first loved loved us. And in the institutes of the Christian religion, John Calvin, the great reformer, compares the service of servants to their master to the service of children who are already convinced of their father's love. And so I have an excerpt here for us from Calvin related to this topic of liberty. How can unhappy souls set themselves with eagerness to work from which they cannot hope to gain anything in return but the curse of God. So those who are trying to obey God's law to, to earn a blessing uh, ultimately are only earning a curse. On the other hand, if freed from this severe exaction of all that the law demands, or rather from the whole rigor of the law, they hear themselves invited by God with paternal levity, that fatherly uh, goodness, they will cheerfully and alertedly obey the call and follow his guidance. In one word, those who are bound by the yoke of the law are like servants who have certain tasks daily assigned to them by their masters. And such servants dare not come into the presence of their masters until the exact amount of labor has been performed. But sons who are treated in a more candid and liberal manner by their parents hesitate not to offer them works that are only begun or half-finished or even with some faults in them, trusting that their obedience and readiness of mind will be accepted, although their performance be less exact than what was wished for. Such should be our feelings, as we certainly trust that our most generous and gracious Father will approve our services, however small they may be and however rude and imperfect they are. And so in order to summarize this very briefly, this is how I read that with relation to liberty. So law-based religions that say do this and live, right? The law. They say love God in order to win his affection and love for you. You have to earn God's love and affection as a servant trying to win the favor of his master. The gospel says something totally different. It says love God because he is already loved you fully, completely. You didn't earn it and you can't lose it. Now love him. You hear the freedom in that, the great freedom that we have to now obey God, not by compulsion, but willingly because we know that we've already been fully loved. So that's the first way it's related to liberty. The second way is this, that liberty that we have in Christ now as Christians, it is vast, and sometimes we refer to this as Christian freedom or Christian liberty, that we have the freedom to enjoy so much of God's good creation to and for His glory. We, because now the Holy Spirit has made God our ultimate love, we are free to love things without making them ultimate things and expecting ultimate results out of those things. We are free to let them be good gifts instead of trying to turn them into idols, to, to find in them all of our satisfaction and joy in those things instead of God. No, we are free to enjoy them, knowing that full satisfaction and full joy is found in God alone. And also with this, the moral law of God mediated through Christ for us is now, according to James, the law of liberty, the law of liberty, Unlike the Mosaic Law in the Old Covenant for God's people of old, God guides us now in many things in life that are non-essentials or indifferent by the Spirit who works upon our conscience. And so unlike the many, the long list of very specific rules and regulations in the Mosaic Law for conducting life in all areas, there's so much more freedom now and the Spirit is governing us by our consciences in matters of indifference or also called uh, adiaphora at times. And this is what the Apostle Paul really addresses in Romans 14 where he speaks about how we ought to be careful not to bind one another's consciences in those matters of indifference that are not essential things. But how is this related to love? That even our Christian liberty must be governed by love. Our love for God and our love for neighbor should always guide our conscience, even in matters of freedom, that we do all out of love. As Calvin again says, nothing is plainer than this rule, that we should use our freedom if it results in the edification of our neighbor. But if it does not help our neighbor, then we should forgo it. You see how love and care for our neighbor and also love for God in the same way should be the governing principle for all of our liberty that we have in Christ. And this as well is found in our Belgic Confession, in part there in Article 32, and so we can turn and look at that, Article 32. And We'll read from the beginning, uh, almost to the end, where it says, "...we also believe that although it is useful and good for those who govern the churches to establish and set up a certain order among themselves for maintaining the body of the church they ought always to guard against deviating from what Christ, our only Master, has ordained for us. Therefore, we reject all human innovations and all laws imposed on us in our worship of God, which bind and force our consciences in any way. And so, we accept only what is proper to maintain harmony and unity and to keep all in obedience to God. And so, as we Even heard this morning, elders, ministers of the word are called to lead in an orderly way in the church, but not to the point where they bind or force the consciences of Christians in matters that are indifferent, that are non-essential. Ultimately, as well, they are to govern and lead the, the, the body of Christ with love, which means as well allowing for liberty, having charity with one another in matters of indifference, and so far as it honors Christ and builds up the body of the church, having love being the primary motivation of all we do, even our use of our Christian liberty. And so this keeps us, again, it keeps us focused on what is most essential. What is not indifferent in the faith, but what is absolutely necessary. It keeps us directed towards loving God and loving our neighbor instead of, as the Belgic says here, instead of breaking up our harmony or unity that we have in Christ over petty distinctions of matters that are non-essential. And I truly believe that if we were more governed by love and if we had greater appreciation for the liberty that Christ has secured for us and the work of the Spirit on our consciences, then we would have greater unity and peace in the church overall, the church universal. But of course, we know that we do divide over petty distinctions, that we do not let love govern us in those matters, and we take things that are indifferent and petty distinctions and we elevate them to essentials often, and we divide over those things. And so we see that this is always a struggle for us and always will be the site of glory. But the good news is that Christ has secured for us heaven which, as Jonathan Edwards says in that sermon, is a world of love, love perfected. This is what Jonathan Edwards, this is how he describes heaven. He says, the petty distinctions of this world do not draw lines in the society of heaven, but all meet in the equality of holiness and of holy love. The saints in heaven shall have no difficulty in expressing all their love. Their souls being on fire with holy love shall not be like a fire pent up but like a flame uncovered and at liberty. Their spirits, being winged with love, shall have no weight upon them to hinder their flight. Love naturally desires to express itself, and in heaven the love of the saints shall be at at full liberty to express itself as it desires, whether it be toward God or to created beings. What a joy that Christ has secured that place for us. Not only that, he has secured the purification of our hearts and the mending of our hearts so that we would love purely and perfect, perfectly in that way that he describes it. But even as we evaluate our own hearts now and sit and think about how far we are from that great and glorious day and that great society and that great place, that world of love, what security do we have that we will arrive, that we will ever make it to the kingdom of love? Well, Paul gives us a great assurance in Romans 8, 35 through 39, where he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons... Neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here we find that great assurance, that great security that we will arrive. It doesn't depend on how strong our love is, how perfect or imperfect our love is, but how perfect and strong and eternal and unending God's love is for us. And nothing, no one, can separate you from the love of God that He has for you in Christ Jesus. What a great assurance and comfort that we have in our walk with Christ. Even as we seek to crucify our flesh, we seek to love God all the more purely, expressing our liberty in love for God and for one another. May the Holy Spirit continue to work on us in that way until we arrive in glory to the world that is love. Amen.